Well, hello everyone. It's good to be back together after a couple of weekends of holidays. Hopefully you had a great holiday weekend. And um, let's just get this out of the way as we get started. Um, I hear the whispers. They're getting louder and louder all the time. What's Scott doing with his hair? <laughs> so here's my inspiration. I just, this is what we're going for. Uh, so glad you're here. I want, I want to echo what's already been said. Um, we don't think it's an accident. Any of you are here today. We've been praying for you. Really excited about what God is up to all the time, but particularly this weekend. It's a movie called Nebraska. It was nominated for Best Picture a couple of years ago when it came out, and Bruce Dern was nominated for Best Actor for his portrayal of Woody Grant, an aging man who drinks too much and is convinced he's won a million dollars in some sweepstakes. And the point of the, or the plot of the movie is how is Woody going to get from Montana to Nebraska to claim his prize? But the point of the movie is summed up in that conversation his two sons are having at the end of that clip. Uh, one of the sons, Ross, thinks it's time for dad to go to a nursing home. Uh, but David says, no, 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 he just needs something to live for. The old guy just needs something to live for. And I was thinking as we get started in a new year, uh, new theme, uh, all kinds of new things going on in our life, maybe that's a good question for us to ask ourselves. I've been in ministry since 1995, and it seems to be a question that gets repeated over and over and over again, people trying to figure out what, what's the point of this whole thing, what are we living for? Some of you have made plans, and you've got pretty big dreams and aspirations for this year, very detailed. Hopefully one of the questions you asked as you were making those plans and setting those goals is, what am I living for? And of course, that question hits us all in different kinds of ways. Think about middle school students. What are they living for? Maybe they're just living for survival. How, how do we get through middle school without taking on too many emotional or relational scars? Maybe parents of middle schoolers are living for the same thing. What about high school students? Living for getting good grades, living for getting into the right kinds of extracurricular activities so you look more and more attractive to uh, college recruiters. High school senior, what are you living for? Getting ready to start your last semester of high school. You are absolutely filled with senioritis. You probably have been since September. You're wondering why in the world did mom and dad decide to raise their family in central Iowa? Maybe you are living for getting out of town ASAP. What are you living for? I, I think it's a good question for all of us to ponder Every once in a while, it doesn't matter if we're young or old, male or female, Christian, or maybe not sure where we are when it comes to faith. What are you living for? Here's a question, uh, or the, the way a guy named Paul, one of the early Christians, writes a letter to a church in a city called Corinth, and he gives an answer to this question. I wonder what you think of this. Let's read this out loud together, 2 Corinthians 5.15. Read it with me. Christ died for everyone. So that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. What are you living for? Paul's answer to that question is Christ. We're living for Christ. But let's kind of go through this. He says, Christ died for everyone. That's a good reminder to us, isn't it? I think sometimes we forget that truth. We think there's maybe only certain people that Christ died for. Uh, people who are church people or Christians or are good enough or who somehow earned it, Christ died for them, but that's not what Scripture teaches. Christ died for everyone. Christ died for you. And when we believe that, when we receive it as the most central truth in our life, and we internalize that truth, 
it starts to change things. It changes us from people who are living for ourselves, and more and more all the time we become people who are living for Christ. And that's the other thing I want you to pay attention to in this verse. Part of what Paul is saying is when we're not in a relationship with Christ, when, when we don't belong to Christ, the answer to the question, what am I living for? It's always going to be me. I'm living for myself. And of course, that plays itself out in all sorts of ways, doesn't it? It's a temptation for us all the time to make life all about me. Our daughter, Saffron, is five years old, and she's the sweetest little thing ever, and she's quite a pistol. And so this, this week, Saffron decided, I think 3.15 in the morning is a good time to get out of my bed and climb into bed with mom and dad. 3.15 in the morning. No one should ever see that time of day. Uh, so Thursday morning, 3.15, Saffy climbs into bed, and I'm thinking, Thursday is sermon writing day. And I'm going to need to be getting up in a couple of hours and writing a life-changing sermon on how do we no longer live for ourselves, but live for Christ. So Wendy should probably take care of Saffron, right? <laughs> the problem is Wendy is about the soundest sleeper in the world, and she wasn't budging. And so after a while, I figured I, I better just do this. So I got up, pouting like a 44-year-old baby, slamming cupboard doors, turning on as many lights as possible, hoping that might wake Wendy from her slumber. It didn't work. She slept right through the whole thing. And... Here I am taking care of my daughter, right? Food and beverage and get her back to sleep. So Paul writes, Paul writes, those who receive this new life will no longer live for themselves. Apparently I have not received this new life. <laughs> or, or maybe I have, and maybe this new life that Jesus offers us, it's not like a one and done transaction. It's not like, oh yeah, I'll take that new life. What's that going to cost me? And now we're done and off we go. Maybe moving from immaturity to maturity in terms of our faith, in terms of our spiritual life, takes time. Maybe even takes years, just like moving from immaturity to maturity physically takes time. And so Paul is saying, here's the goal, here's what we're after, receive this new life and begin this process, this journey of growing more and more all the time into faithful people following after Jesus. That's what he says to the church in Corinth. Paul also writes a letter to a church in a city called Philippi, and part of what Paul's up to in that letter is trying to explain to them how much better life is when we stop living for ourselves and we start living for Christ. Here's what he writes in Philippians 3, verse 8. Everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Everything else is worthless. That's a little over the top, isn't it? I mean, come on, Paul, seriously? I mean, I, I understand why you would say, you know, it's better, living for Christ is better than everything else, but to say everything else is worthless? And, and he goes on to say it's actually garbage. And the word he uses is a little more profane than that. He's trying to make it as clear as he possibly can that nothing compares Nothing compares to the life that is ours when we know Christ Jesus, our Lord. Woody Grant is living for this million dollars, and no one believes him that he's won. Everyone's telling him it's just, you know, a crock, and he starts walking to Nebraska on his own, and the family's getting exhausted, tracking him down day after day after day. And so finally his son David says, Dad, I'll just drive you to Lincoln, Nebraska. So they start this road trip, and along the way, they make a stop at the small town in Nebraska where Woody grew up and where most of his brothers and their families still live. 
And so it's kind of a, a miniature family reunion. They gather together. They hardly ever get together and see each other. So you would expect they have all kinds of things to talk about, right? Yeah, not so much. I want you to watch this scene because I think it gives us a pretty good picture of what worthless living looks like. Take a look. Well, I like football as much as the next guy. I mean, I plan on watching some football this afternoon. Uh, but, man, I remember sitting in the movie theater and watching that scene unfold and thinking what a perfect example and what a depressing example of the quality of relationships so many people in our world have. And it's a family that hasn't seen each other for a while and they just sit around in a trance watching the football game, talking about old cars. And you say, yeah, 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 preach it, Pastor Scott. The men in this room really need to figure out how to be in community and relationship. It's not just men. It's women too. The scene I didn't show you because it was inappropriate for worship is the women are in the kitchen while that scene's unfolding and they're having conversations and um, talking, talking, talking. But it's really clear when you pay attention to their conversation, they're keeping it at the surface level. One woman asks another woman, where are your sons? I thought they were coming over. And she replies, well, they can't come. They're out volunteering today. And it turns out the volunteering they're doing is community service as part of punishment for a crime they had committed. And she was embarrassed and didn't want anybody to know that. So the men are in the living room not talking. The women are in the kitchen chatting it up. But nobody knows anybody. Nobody really knows anybody. I wonder if you'd read this verse with me. Again, it's on the screen. Read it out loud. This is the way to have eternal life, to know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. I try to talk about this on a pretty regular basis. Most of us, when we see that phrase, eternal life, we immediately think we're talking about what happens to us after we die. And certainly that's a part of eternal life, but when you look closely at what Jesus teaches, what Jesus says about eternal life, it's very clear for Jesus, eternal life is both a quality of life and a quantity of life. So it's a quantity of life in that it's life that never ends even after we die. Life in heaven for eternity with God, it's going to be fantastic. One of the things we say around hope a lot is we exist to make heaven more crowded. We want you to know God, we want you to know Jesus so you can have that eternal life. But eternal life is also a quality of life. It's Jesus saying, here's the very best way to live your life right now on this earth before you die. Paul is saying, Paul is saying, when we receive this new life, this eternal life that God has for us through Jesus, we no longer live for ourselves and now we live for Christ. He's saying there's a right here, right now component to eternal life. And Jesus will say in John chapter 10, verse 10, I've come that you may have life and have it to the full, right here, right now. I've come that you can have a life that is abundant, a life that is overflowing in, in all sorts of ways, right here right now. And hopefully you look at this scene from Nebraska and you think, yuck, that is no way to live. That, that's no kind of life. And maybe you think, I have nothing in common with those characters. My life is completely removed from that kind of life. I've got plans. I've got dreams. I've got hopes and aspirations. I've got places to go. I've got people to meet. My life is full. My life is busy. Okay, that's great. Just remember, there's a very big difference between having a full calendar and living a full life. Jesus says, I want you to have eternal life, eternal life that is yours when you know Jesus, when you know God. It helps you live the very best kind of life possible right now. 
And, and Paul says everything else is worthless. Everything else is garbage when it's compared to knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. What do the guys want to know? How long does it take to drive from Montana to Nebraska? How quick did you make it? It's an empty life. And the reality is a lot of people in this room are living lives that are just as empty, but you don't know it. You're completely oblivious. You are clueless to how empty your life is. And you've been deceived. I mean, you are absolutely convinced you're living the good life. But every once in a while, you feel it, don't you? You feel that internal sort of pang, that emptiness, that something that rises up in your spirit, in your soul that says, I don't know. I wonder, I question, what if there is more to life than this? And maybe that's why you're here at church today. Whatever it is that you have been living for, it has not led to the life that you wanted. So maybe it's time, maybe it's time to start living a whole new kind of life. Jesus, the public ministry that Jesus does from his baptism to his uh, death and resurrection, it's only a three-year period of time. Three years, that's a relatively short amount of time. Three years of teaching, three years of performing miracles, three years of demonstrating to, to anyone who is paying attention here's the best way to live life. Here's the Jesus way of life. And so it's really kind of amazing when you stop and think about it that 2,000 years later, billions of people across this globe wake up every day and they make a decision, I'm going to shape my life around the Jesus way of life. Sure, there were great crowds of people that followed Jesus early on in his ministry. What's this guy going to do next? What's this guy going to say next? But by the time it gets to the end of those three years, by the time he is arrested, almost everyone has abandoned Jesus. Almost everyone has turned and walked away from Jesus. And then something amazing happens. On the third day, he rose again, just like he said, just like he promised, and he appears to his disciples, and he appears to over 500 people in and around Jerusalem, and the news begins to spread. Did you hear? Jesus is alive. Did you hear? The tomb is empty. Imagine if something like that happened here. If someone for months had been pre predicting they were going to die, but it's okay, they'd, three days later they would rise from death to life. We would know about it. We would hear about it, and everyone was talking about it, and 50 days later, there's this huge annual festival. Thousands of people from all over the world gather together in Jerusalem, and the Holy Spirit gets poured out on Jesus' disciples. He told them to go to this room and wait, and they're kind of scared, and they're timid, and they don't know what to do, and the Holy Spirit gets poured out, and all of a sudden, they hit the streets, and they're not scared of anything. They're brave, they're courageous, and they're telling anyone who would listen this news that Jesus is alive, Peter stands up in front of a crowd of thousands of people and he says, Jesus is alive. Jesus, this teacher from Galilee who performs miracles and signs and wonders and it wasn't good enough for you. Jesus, the one that you shouted, crucify, 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 and you nailed him to a tree and you watched him die. Jesus is alive. He's the Messiah. He's the Lord. Death couldn't hold him in his grip. And Jesus has new life for you through the power of the Holy Spirit, new life for you through the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And the crowd is hanging on every word that Peter speaks. And when he finishes, here's how Luke records the response of the crowd. Peter's words pierced their hearts. Peter's words pierced their hearts. Have you ever had your heart pierced? You ever have that moment where you are just kind of overwhelmed with an awareness of how much of a sinner you are? 
how much you mess up in your life, how undeserving, how unworthy you are, and yet at the same time even greater than that, an awareness that there is a God who loves you no matter what, a God who loves you in spite of it all. I get pierced in the heart about every week during the offering song. In the order of worship, the offering is almost always what happens right before I get up here to preach. And almost always, as soon as the music starts for the offering song, I find myself thinking, what are you doing? You're going to get up there and you're going to talk about faith and you're going to point people to God's love and God's grace in this new way of life that Jesus offers us. You need someone to preach to you. You need someone to point you to a new way of life. Every week during that offering song, I have this moment where I'm pierced in the heart and I'm just aware of how sinful I am and how guilty I am. And I know, I know, I know. Some of you are now, now I remember why I don't come to church. It's always about guilt. It's just one giant guilt trip. Always this weekly reminder of how awful I am. I like the way a woman named Kathy Ladman talks about this. She says, you know, all religions are the same. Religion is just guilt with different holidays. (laughs) So kind of pick your favorite holiday and that's the religion for you. Uh, Being pierced in the heart, it's about guilt, but not in this burdensome way, not in this shame-inducing way, judgmental way that we typically think about guilt. Being pierced in the heart is what Paul is talking about when he talks about godly sorrow. Later on in this letter to the church in Corinth, he talks about godly sorrow. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Godly sorrow, being pierced in the heart, is just this awareness that there is a better way of life. There's a better way of life that's available to us than the life we've been living. So the people listen to Peter's sermon They are pierced in their hearts, and they say to Peter, man, we shouted crucify him. We doubted. We didn't believe, and and now he's alive. He is the one. He is the Messiah. What should we do? Would you read with me what Peter tells them? Here's how you should respond to this news. It's on the screen. Read it out loud with me. Each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And Luke, the author of Acts, goes on to say that day 3,000 people were baptized. 3,000 people received forgiveness of sin. 3,000 people experienced the power of God's grace and God's love at work in their life. 3,000 people are ushered into eternal life. And remember, Jesus says eternal life, it's all about knowing God. So repentance, repentance, it just means changing direction, turning around. I'm going one way, I'm living for one thing, but then I repent and now I'm living instead of for myself, now I'm living for Christ. Instead of going my way, now I'm going Christ's way. And so they repent, they are baptized with water, and then it's almost like the, very, the, the way Luke writes about it, the next thing that happens is that whole crowd of 3,000 people, they are baptized in community. Baptized in community. What do I mean by that? Well, baptism comes from a Greek word that literally means put them under till they bubble. I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son. I can't breathe that. Ah, it's just kidding. It doesn't mean put them under till they bubble. It means to be immersed. To be immersed. To be baptized is to be immersed. When, and so the picture is when I'm baptized, God's 
love and grace in the form of water, it surrounds me. It fills me. I become someone who is in Christ. I die to my old way of life. I'm raised to a whole new way of living. I'm baptized with water. I'm baptized with God's grace and God's love. And then I'm also baptized in community. Baptism has always been part of uh, a reminder that we're, we belong. We're part of this community. And the way that Luke writes this in Acts chapter 2, this is exactly how it unfolds. They are pierced in their hearts. Peter says, repent and be baptized, and they're baptized with water. And then the next thing that happens, starting in verse 42, part of our Bible reading from earlier on, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. The believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together in the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity. And you, you read through this and you start to see, you know, faith, faith is not a private kind of deal. Faith was always intended to be a, how do we live together in community as followers of Jesus Christ? And you look at what's going on in the early church, they are immersing themselves in the knowledge of God. So they're devoted to worship, they're devoted to prayer, they're devoted to meeting together and learning They also devote themselves to sharing meals together. They devote themselves to sharing everything they have with one another, with whoever is in need. And I was thinking if a a church, if a group of people was really devoted to God the way the early church is devoted to God, how well do you think they would know God? And if a church like the early church was devoted to community the way this early church was, how well do you think they might know one another? Pretty well, and when we hear this word know, K-N-O-W, in our world and in our culture, we almost immediately jump to knowledge, and we make knowing this intellectual pursuit. Knowing is all about what's going on in my mind, but biblically, knowing is a very relational idea. Knowing and loving are almost exactly the same thing. And so that gets us to our theme for this year. As a church, Lutheran Church of Hope, all the campuses of hope, our theme this year is to know and to be known. To know and to be known. We want to know God and be known by God. We want to know one another and be known by one another in deeper and deeper ways all the time. And I want to share with you a quote by a guy named Tim Keller, an author and pastor in New York City. I think it kind of gets to the heart of what this year is going to be about for us. Tim Keller writes, to be loved but not known. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved as well, a lot like being loved by God, it is what we need more than anything. To know and to be known by a God who loves us, by a community who loves us and accepts us warts and all. To know and to be known, that's our goal for this year. And if that sounds like something you want to be a part of, maybe some of you are already saying, sounds good, how do we do this? What should we do? How do we respond? Maybe we should respond the same way the early church does in Acts chapter 2, repent and be baptized. And so we want to give you the opportunity to do that. 
At the end of the service today, we want to invite anyone who would like to be baptized to come to the water, and, and we will baptize you. Maybe you've already been baptized. You want to renew your baptism vow? Always. It doesn't matter how old we are. doesn't matter how long we've been following after Jesus. There's always a next step in faith. And maybe this is a good time for you to just kind of recalibrate your life, recalibrate your faith and say, I want to live for Christ. So we're going to give you the opportunity to do that. But first, I want you to take a look at this video. So when we were building this place and when we were designing this worship center, I said, let's have the baptismal font as close to the cross as possible. Because the waters of baptism represent the new life, the eternal life that's available to us, that's God's gift to us because of what God's son Jesus did on the cross with his life and his death and his resurrection. So if you want that life, the invitation is open. Come to the water. We'll just have everybody line up over here and... Uh, We'll baptize people or we'll renew your baptism and we will celebrate together. Would you stand with me? I'd like to pray for us. Lord, you are a good God. You lavishly pour out your love and your grace and your forgiveness into our lives and you continually call us to follow you and to experience the life that is truly life. We desire that, not just this day, but for the rest of our lives. And we pray for it in Jesus' name. Amen.